Every year, for almost 100 years, a very exclusive group in Hollywood gets together to recognize the best of the best as they see it. This year's no exception. The 94th Academy Awards air this Sunday, a little late because of the pandemic. The past few years have been interesting for movies in general. COVID-19 shut down productions and movie theaters for a while. And even though studios are back to work and theaters are open, more and more people are opting to watch HBO Max or Netflix from the comfort of their couch rather than going to a crowded theater. And maybe because we have so many other things to watch, it feels like fewer people have actually seen the handful of films and performances nominated for an Oscar. In 1998, Titanic won the Oscar for Best Picture. It was also nominated for a bunch of other awards. And it was the number one movie at the box office that year. Fast forward to 2022, and the Oscar frontrunner is a pretty obscure Western from Netflix that may or may not be popular. Netflix doesn't disclose its viewership numbers. And it's not just popularity. Take West Side Story, for example. It's also nominated for Best Picture. But when the movie first came out, people questioned if it should even be made because the original was kind of racist. And then boom, it was nominated for an Oscar. The Academy Awards occupy a strange place in our culture. They're still one of the highest honors in Hollywood, but sometimes they feel disconnected from regular audiences. Welcome to Pop Cultured. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about the Oscars. The Academy Awards have evolved to respond to an evolving audience. We're going to talk about how those changes are showing up and the movies and performances you should catch before the big show. Before we get into this year's Oscar contenders, I want to talk a little bit about the way we watch movies. The pandemic completely changed our cinematic experience. And now, for the most part, most of us watch the big screen on our small screens. Certainly, there were original movies on streamers before COVID-19, but the Academy sometimes seemed a little reluctant to honor them. And now, things have changed. Before the pandemic, there was certainly a branch of the Academy that did not love streaming. And they saw movies as a theatrical experience. And the only way you can get the magic of the movies is by going out and seeing it in the theaters, which is something I sort of do agree with. Nate Jones covers movies for Vulture.com. I mean, you see so many streaming films come and they just come and go, whereas it's movies that like are playing in theaters like Spider-Man that do sort of have that big impact. But then, obviously, the pandemic happened and it became illegal and very dangerous to go to theaters. So then they sort of had two options. You can either cancel the Oscars and say, okay, like, streaming movies don't count, and since it's only streaming movies, like, let's just not have them. Or you can say, okay, let's open up the tent. Let's, let's bring these streaming movies in because for this year and for who knows how long, like, these kind of are the only movies left. The Academy needed movies to award, and the streaming movies certainly have long wanted to be awarded. And I think you were certainly seeing that this year where the two frontrunners are big streaming service movies. You have Power of the Dog, which is a Netflix film, and Coda, which is Apple TV+. We've gone into it before by having like one of the two frontrunners be a streaming film, but this is the first year that it seems like the two frontrunners are both streaming. 
Obviously, there's still a chance for something else to sort of pop up at the very last minute and take away. But yes, it does seem like for the first time, this is when a streaming film will win Best Picture. The big question is if Coda takes it instead of Power of the Dog, that will mean that Apple TV+, Plus, which just got started a few years ago, wins an Oscar before Netflix. And that's when you really have to start asking like, oh, like, does the Academy hate streaming or do they hate Netflix? Because the fact that Netflix is streaming is only one sort of element of the reason people in the Academy are a little bit skeptical of Netflix. You know, they don't release their data. Is they're sort of throwing the business model of everything else out of whack. And, you know, they're making it very hard for people to figure out like what's actually successful and things like that. So yeah, so if Power of the Dog loses, I think that's when we might need to start saying like, oh, like they really don't like Netflix. One thing that hasn't changed the Oscars are still pretty white. It's been seven years since the Oscars So White hashtag brought attention to the lack of racial diversity in the Oscar nominee pool. And since that time, some things have gotten better, then worse, then better again, and now maybe worse. So after Oscar So White, the Academy did a big effort to expand its membership. And there were sort of three planks of that. It was, we want to get more non-white voters, we want to get more female voters, and we want to get more international voters. And this year is the year they kind of said like, okay, mission accomplished. They were inviting hundreds and hundreds of people every year and like sort of drastically growing the ranks. And this was the year where they said like, okay, we've kind of like hit our goals and now we won't be inviting as many new people in. In terms of other years, it's more diverse than we saw two years ago, but far less diverse than last year. So last year was an interesting year in that like, because a lot of movies that were the quote unquote typical Oscar bait were like, well, I'm not releasing during a pandemic. You saw a lot of sort of smaller under the radar films become the Oscar films by default, like Sound of Metal, films like Minari. And so because of that, it was a very diverse year. And this year, the sort of big Oscar players have, have come back and they, they've stepped in it and said like, okay, we're here again. And that has made it, you know, a, a, a slightly wider field than last year. However, we are probably going to come away from Oscar night with two of the four acting winners being people of color. You know, Will Smith almost certainly going to win Best Actor for King Richard and Ariana DeBose probably going to win Best Supporting Actress for West Side Story. However, it's still a fairly white year. Best Actress is entirely white, but certainly it's not as bad as it was those years when it was entirely white. And I've, even two years ago, the Cynthia Erivo nomination was the only thing preventing it from being a fully white site. So it is, you know, it, it, it has gotten better in, in that regard. The weird sort of undercurrent often with like the Academy's diversity was you would often see like a lot of people of color win and get nominated in the supporting acting categories, but the lead categories would be pretty white. And that was always like a little bit of a dicey thing where it was like, I'm like, oh, like, you know, these are good roles, but still like, who's like given the chance to lead a picture? But, you know, that's less of a pressing topic this year because it seems like, you know, Will Smith is gonna take home Best Actor. And you have Denzel and Tragedy of Macbeth. Every year, there's always one big movie that everyone's betting on to win Best Picture. And this year, it's Jane Campion's Power of the Dog. Power of the Dog was the most nominated film. You know, it got cinematography, it got editing, it got score. It's sort of a thing that is a triumph on a crafts level too, not just sort of a writing and directing. So The Power of the Dog is a Western based on a book by Thomas Savage. It is directed by Jane Campion, who is probably best known for directing The Piano. 
from the early 90s. She is widely regarded as one of the top directors of her generation, but unfortunately this is her first film she's made since 2009. And so this is her sort of big comeback to movies after spending a little bit of time in TV. She did Top of the Lake with Elizabeth Moss. And so that is sort of the movie's big kind of awards hook. That is, it is the return of a major artist who has not quite been given her due. And there is a sense that if she was a male director, she probably would have been able to get more chances than she did. But of course, the quality of the movie also matters. And it is a very beautiful Western that sort of interrogates toxic masculinity, family, alcoholism, their queer themes. See, that's what you do with the cloth. It's really just for wine drips. Oh, got that, boys. Only for the drip. (laughs) There's a lot going on, and it's... It's a very capably made movie. It's very crafted. You feel like you are sort of in the hands of a director who has you exactly where she wants you. And you're sort of like relaxing into her and letting her take you where she wants to go. And for most of the movie, you kind of don't know where that is. And then at the end, it is sort of all wrapped up with this sort of perfect bow. And you realize how she's been playing you the entire time. So it's just a very satisfying movie experience. And when you come out of it, most of the people who love the movie come out of it raving about the ending. And you, it's just this very triumphant ending, both in terms of sort of narrative, but also in terms of just on a storytelling level, the, the fact that she was able to sort of pull this off with such a plum. So Power of the Dog is clearly this year's favorite, but this year's underdog is Coda. It wouldn't be a real Oscar race without a smaller, lower-budget Best Picture nominee to pit the big-budget front-runner against. This year's is a feel-good movie about a teenage girl who can hear, but is the child of deaf adults, or a coda. The movie title is an acronym. What are you doing next year? I don't know. Working with my dad. No college? I can't afford school. They have scholarships. It's all about her struggle to leave her family while also support them and love them. And it's, it's a very sort of heartwarming film. It's an adaptation of a French film from a few years back. It has flown under the radar for most of the season, and it is only kind of just now getting Oscar attention as serious player. It was always considered a l- sort of little movie that kind of snuck in under the wire towards the end. But then a few weeks ago, it won the Best Ensemble Award at the SAG Awards. And that traditionally means something. How much it means, we don't know. It could just mean that people like the movie but don't think it deserves to win Best Picture. Or, as we saw with Parasite, it maybe means everything. It maybe means that Hollywood is rallying around this film. It's been a little harder to tell those kind of things this year in that because of the coronavirus and Omicron, there's just been fewer in-person events. And so you don't really get that sense of like, who does everybody want to meet? Is there a chill through the room when this movie's title gets announced? So it's a little harder to tell how much something like Coda's SAG Award really means. But it's a very heartwarming film, and its advantage that it has is Oscar uses a preferential ballot. So you don't just vote for your favorite film, you list all the films in the order of preference. And so Power of the Dog is a very good movie, but it's also potentially a little more polarizing. It's colder, it's chillier, it's not a movie that makes you feel like amazing about humanity, even though it's very good. Whereas Coda really does have that factor, right? Coda is a very much like you want to 
watch it while you're sitting with your parents on the couch and hug them. You know, it's a very just like a warm family movie. And so if Coda does win, it's it's likely that factor. It's that it is, this is a movie that like would play very well on a preference ballot because I haven't met anybody who hates Coda. So Coda might be hard to hate, but there are several films nominated this year that aren't exactly audience favorites. And that's what we usually see with the Oscars. A handful of the movies are the ones everybody has seen, like blockbusters. A few of the movies will be really critically acclaimed, stuff that most people have heard about, even if they haven't seen it. And a few of the movies are usually pretty obscure. But this year, it feels like more of the movies fall into the obscure category, while other really popular movies were snubbed altogether. And the Academy has their group of, you know, a few thousand working professionals often in California, but often spread around. And they have, like anybody who all sort of works in the same industry, they all generally, you do get a fair amount of groupthink. Over the years, we've seen things that they they gravitate towards that maybe other people don't. You know, they love inside showbiz movies. They love craft, if that makes sense. Like Nightmare Alley is a movie that I saw that, you know, I didn't hate, but I didn't particularly love it. And I, I for one, didn't think it was going to get a Best Picture nomination, but then it did. But if you see it, it has very sumptuously built sets and the cinematography is beautiful and the score is very glittery. Mr. Carlyle, come in. Slow day. Have you not heard? We're at war. I'm aware. It's very much a movie that you can sort of feel the craftspeople working inside of it. And it's, you know, directed by a director who has won Best Director before. You know, it has this pedigree to it. And so I think something like that often will play better to the Oscars. And then people sitting at home are kind of like, well, this is like, you know, a two and a half hour movie about carnivals that, you know, stuff is happening, but it's not really grabbing my interest. And I think that also explains why you see some of the snubs. You know, a lot of people have been asking, like, why didn't Spider-Man? You know, Spider-Man was a movie that people did, for better or worse, talk about and get excited by. But the Academy, like, they don't dislike blockbusters. You know, we've seen Black Panther, we've seen Joker get Best Picture nominations. But they like them to have, it's a very sort of illusory quality, but they like it to have this sort of, quote-unquote, prestige, which is hard to put your finger on it. But just the way that, like, they will go for a superhero movie if the superhero movie is trying to be a Scorsese movie from the 70s, like Joker. Or if it's like a very sort of historic first, like Black Panther, which sort of does things with the genre that hadn't been done before. But a movie that is kind of just, for lack of a better word, just a superhero movie, even if it's like fun and good, they don't see that as special. There's a famous quote from Mad Men where Don Draper yells, that's what the money's for. I get the sense that like, that is how the Academy feels about these sort of big blockbusters. It's like, they already got the reward, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they got plenty of attention already. Like, our job is to select the best. And sometimes that's very good, right? Like, that's how you get a movie like Drive My Car. You know, being somebody who writes about film, I love Drive My Car. You know, it's a three-hour subtitled Japanese film that's very slow and is mostly about directing Uncle Vanya. But it's a great movie, and it, I thought it really resonated with me. And I liked that the Academy sort of gave a spot to that. 
in the best case scenario, that's what they are doing. Is they are spotlighting little movies that are good quality, regardless of who put them out or what kind of movie stars they have. But then the downside of that is, yes, then you do have a film like, say, Nightmare Alley or Being the Ricardos, which you know, is sort of tailor-made for that Academy audience. And they think is like, oh, this one really resonates with me. But yes, it doesn't resonate with the people outside. So there's not an easy answer to the question, like, why don't they just do movies that the, the general populace likes? Because if they do that, then they genuinely will be overlooking a lot of good work that I think it is important for them to recognize. Nicole Kidman's performance in Being the Ricardos did snag a Best Actress nomination. She's up against other Oscar favorites like Penelope Cruz, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Stewart, and Olivia Colman. And even though those women were nominated for their leading roles in movies, none of the movies they're in are up for Best Picture. So that is a particularly jarring case, which is, yeah, this is the first year in a while that there have been no Best Picture nominees and Best Actress. But the trend is something we've seen a lot, whereas... There's a lot more overlap with Best Picture in Best Actor than there are in Best Actress. Like, usually it's like three or four, if not five, of the, of the male nominees will be from Best Picture nominees. And usually it's like one or two of the Best Actress nominees. And that, you know, going back to what we were saying about, like, lead and supporting, that is, there is a little bit of this, like, I think, unconscious bias on the Academy of, like, whose stories are worthy of overall recognition and whose stories are worthy of just, like, this sort of like special corner, you know? And if it's like a woman's story, it's like, okay, we'll put you in this little special corner. If it's a male story, it's like, oh, this is an amazing film all around. You know, obviously there are exceptions, you know, like Coda is a movie with a female lead, you know? So there there are films in the best picture race that do have female leads, but for whatever reason, they didn't get actress nominations. But yes, in general, there is sort of a little, a little bit of a blind spot in terms of like, whose movies are sort of serious Oscar players and whose movies are sort of just actors players. When we look at the Best Actor nomination pool this year, there's a clear frontrunner. As a little boy, my mom used to say, son, the most strongest, the most powerful, the most dangerous creature on this whole earth is a woman who know how to think. Ain't nothing she can't do. Y'all know how to think? Yes, Daddy. Now these people we about to go see you gonna show them how dangerous you are? Yes, Daddy. Let me see your dangerous face. Now, I'm a Will Smith fan, don't get me wrong. That scene he did on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where he asked Uncle Phil why his dad didn't want him, some of the best acting I've ever seen on television. And of course, he's had some other great roles since then. But I have to admit, I don't think King Richard is one of them. I'm no critic, of course, but to me, Will Smith sort of played the King Richard role like a caricature. Plus, the whole thing was kind of corny. However, the Academy, a bunch of other award shows, and Nate disagree with me. I like King Richard. It's a very good performance. As we were talking about Coda, it's like just a very mainstream movie that you can watch with a bunch of different people in your life. And I think it is important that the Oscars sort of recognize that. And, you know, I like when they get arty, but I also like when they say like, okay, we don't all need to be art house films. We can do sort of mainstream entertainment too, because that is ultimately what the movies are all about. So even if we agree to disagree about Will Smith's performance in King Richard, his name has been brought up in the Oscar So White conversation before by fans and his wife, who thought he'd been snubbed and overlooked in previous years. So I wonder, why now? Why did he get nominated for King Richard? Often it sort of comes down to timing and competition, right? Like I think Will Smith's first nomination, he was up against Denzel for Training Day, 
And like, obviously, as good as Will Smith is, like, he wasn't beating Denzel that year. And that is what so much of this sort of award season apparatus and the campaigning is all about doing is sort of this sort of inchoate sense that this is their time and their year and selling this narrative. Because at the end of the day, like, this isn't sports. There isn't like an objective way to determine which performance is like actually his best performance. It's so, everything is so subjective. So you do sort of need to like do these narratives. And so ever since the very beginning of the season, like that film also played Telluride around Labor Day. And it was very much like, this is his time. This is his year. I think there is a sense that like people like it when actors, especially less so actresses, but they like it when you have some years under your belt. They often don't like to give you the trophy your first time around. Obviously, there are exceptions, but usually when they win, they've had a few prior noms already. They love to give it to a veteran who's kind of on the second half of their career as sort of like a celebration of their entire career. That is a thing we see happen over and over and over again. And so I think with, with Will Smith, he was very savvy about realizing like, this is a very good role for me. I think he picked good material. I think often we've seen with Will Smith when he like goes for Oscar, he gets a little bit sort of schmaltzy and sort of like overly contrived. You know, you think of movies like Collateral Beauty, which were just sort of these huge, terrible misfires. But this, he chose really good material. It was a very good package. It's a good director. They got the family on board. He's been very smart about making it not all about him. You know, he's been a good campaigner, throwing attention to the real Williamses, to the real Richard Williams, to his female co-stars in a way that makes him look like a good good co-star. They've been very good about sort of crafting this sort of feel-good narrative around the film that makes you want to reward him. Not only the it's your time narrative, but like you want to make people feel good about marking a ballot for you. You mentioned Will Smith's co-stars. One of them, Anjanae Ellis, is nominated in the supporting actress category for her role as Oracine Williams, Venus and Serena's mother. I know you know how hard it is raising a daughter. I have five of them. Five. So this nomination is really exciting to me because Anjanae Ellis is a great actress, but she does a lot of TV. She was in um, Lovecraft Country on HBO, and she was in this like amazing Lifetime movie about the Clark sisters, and she was so good. It was definitely Oscar-level acting, but I guess the Academy doesn't recognize Lifetime. So anyway, it's just really great to see her up there for the nomination. Are there any other standouts like that for you, actors or movies that usually don't get recognized? I think the one that really stands out is Troy Kotzer from CODA, who over the course of the season has sort of slowly become the frontrunner for Best Supporting Actor. So he is the first deaf actor to be nominated for an Oscar ever. He is a guy who has worked very steadily in the business. And like I was saying about, like, they like to give to people with some years under your belt, like, this is a guy, he's been in the industry for 20 years, but just because of the way it works, he's mostly had, like, little tiny bit parts. Like, you go to his IMDb and it's just, like, very small roles in TV shows you've heard that, like, sometimes you remember and sometimes you don't. But he kept plugging away on it, and he got this lovable, heartwarming dad role in a little indie movie, and suddenly that turned into a life-changing role for him. And that is what the Oscars really like to do. And you compare him to his biggest competition, is Cody Smith-McPhee from Power of the Dog, and because that also is such like a standout performance in Power of the Dog, at the beginning of the season, everyone thought Cody Smith-McPhee would maybe be 
the guy to take it home. But there is sort of like the age factor weirdly working against him where they like somebody who's kind of been in the trenches for a few years. They often, especially on the male side, do not like giving it to like a fresh young face the way that Cody Smith McPhee is. So Kotzer, I think, is, is sort of the big standout in that regard. And then in the international feature category, there's sort of a cute little story. Bhutan, you know, the small Himalayan nation, got in with their film called A Yak in the Classroom, which is a film about a yak in a classroom. <laughs> and it is the first time they have ever gotten an international film nomination. And so, you know, you look and usually that category, you know, it's a lot of France, it's a lot of Italy. And so it's always nice when like, you know, a little country like Bhutan can also get into the Oscar race. We've talked about the big movies of the year, like Power of the Dog, and the small surprises like Yak in the Classroom. But there are still so many more. So to help me get through a few of them, I asked Nate to do a lightning round. And I also got a little help from the Skims audio team. I'm Alex. I'm the host of Skim This. My name is Andrew Calloway. I'm senior audio engineer. I am Alicia Key. I am a producer for Pop Cultured. I'm Graylin. I lead the audio team at The Skim. So if you're trying to figure out which Oscar movies to watch before the big show next week, here are a few you might want to include on your list. I'm going to shout out Drive My Car. It's very long, but... If there is a day when it's like a rainy Saturday, rainy Sunday, you have nothing else to do, you want to spend three hours on your couch having this very intense emotional experience, thinking about grief and loss and life and what does it mean to keep living, it's on HBO Max. The next one is a team favorite. Several people loved this documentary, including me. When you looked at the audience, you could see the change in the scene as it was happening. There would still be people in silken wool and shark skin, but you would see the bell bottoms, the cut-off shirts. One of my favorite movies is actually a nominated documentary, and it's called Summer of Soul, and it's about these beautiful open-air concerts in the 60s in Harlem in New York. And it's really just a celebration of music and how music brings people together. And I'm also from New York, so it was really fun to just see vintage shots of the city and, and these types of musical events. Here's one if you're in the mood for an international romantic comedy. My favorite Oscar-nominated film that I've seen so far is Worst Person in the World, which is a Norwegian kind of a romantic comedy. It's kind of a drama. It's about a woman who doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life and is kind of trying to find herself. It's like a Buildings Roman coming-of-age film. Unfortunately, they can't all be hits. Here are the ones to miss, or at least put at the bottom of your list. And we'll start with one you might not expect. The Power of the Dog. I know this one is a surprise because it's probably going to win Best Picture, but it didn't really do it for me either. The character development, it made you do a lot more work, and a lot of the, the stories just weren't, they weren't defined. Like, I feel like I didn't get enough subtle details. I just feel like the character development just... It wasn't enough for me. A movie I really could not get into, I'll say dislike, I really was not into Spencer. That's a movie about Princess Diana's decision to leave the royal family. I just don't care about the royals. I thought the pacing was so slow, it was geriatric, and I just don't need to see it again. And I'm happy for Kristen Stewart that she's nominated. 
I guess it sounds like she did a really good job portraying Diana. I didn't get it. I didn't know why it was just one weekend. I like live for the drama and the drama was not included. I mean, mine would be Nightmare Alley. Like, no shade. It's a fine movie. It's fun. Kate Blanchett is like very fun in it as this sort of a femme fatale. But I just, I didn't get much out of it. I, it's a fine movie. And then there was this one we could all agree on. Don't look up. Don't look up. Don't look up. Don't look up. Obviously, don't look up is the one that everybody hates the most. Don't Look Up is Netflix's satirical comedy directed by Adam McKay about a fictional end of the world brought on by an impending comet. It has a lot of big stars in it like Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jennifer Lawrence. So basically, what you're saying is you're about to lose the midterms because you got caught sending pictures of your cooch to your porn star sheriff boyfriend. So now it's to your advantage to act on the comet. I don't think I've heard one person actually say they like this movie. But maybe I'm talking to the wrong people. It's like sandpaper. It's this very specific thing and this very specific tone and texture that for whatever reason, if you are a 50-something person who lives in Brentwood, you're like, this is hilarious. This is like modern day Jonathan Swift. Like he's just like the world's best satirist. But for whatever reason, people like you and me, it's not working for us. But that said, there are, I have met people who really liked it, so I shouldn't be such such a meanie about it. Okay, so that's the good and the bad. But what about the movies that make you think? The kind of movies that just stay with you because they're haunting or just beautiful. Mine would be West Side Story. I know there are some controversial elements about the source material and stuff, but for me, there is like a sense of showmanship to this movie that they like brought it. Like you can tell everybody in this movie came to play, especially like Spielberg, his cinematographer, his choreographers. You can tell that they're out to dazzle you. There's so many shots that, you know, have been going around Twitter and going around Instagram and stuff like that. Like, oh my God, can you believe they did this? I, I like that. The movie I will not stop thinking about for a long time is Parallel Mothers from the legendary Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. His movies are often these tight, contained dramas with characters who live in these stunningly beautiful apartments making not great choices in their lives, but he makes you love them anyway. This one is about family ties, what it means to, to have a blood connection or not have one. It's also about the legacy of the Spanish Civil War. And Penelope Cruz is amazing in it. She's up for Best Actress for her role. And sometimes a movie sticks with you because it's just so damn funny. Stop, you're going to make me. You're going to make me cry. Nobody has ever said that to me. Nobody. Other Oscar-nominated movie that I love is House of Gucci. House of Gucci is so fun and stupid. And every time Jared Leto is on screen, I'm just like dying laughing harder than I've laughed at any of other movie that I've seen like this year. You talk like Mario. It's just like absurd. These are just mock-ups. I can't afford it to get serious. To be clear, House of Gucci is nominated for best hairstyling and makeup, not for any of the performances. Then there are the movies that just make you ask why. Why did that happen? Why is anybody even talking about this movie? Why was it even made in the first place? And that movie for me is Dune. 
Dune is a sci-fi adventure movie from HBO. It's an adaptation from a popular novel from the 60s, which I guess is why so many people were so excited about it. But to me, it just didn't feel like much happened. And what did happen was unclear. It was also a little on the nose. Come on, the black and brown people live out in nature and they're called the Fremen, like Freeman? I just didn't get the big deal. And as beautiful as Zendaya was in the movie, oh, of course, the effects were great too, it just kind of left me scratching my head. Dune seems to have had the same effect on others, but for different reasons. The movie that still has me scratching my head is Dune. I will say straight up that I more than loved this movie. I think it, it might be the greatest cinematic feat of all time. I am not exaggerating. But I agree with this point that I've seen made that it represented a missed opportunity. If you come to that story cold without knowing that the book is a deep and fierce criticism of capitalist colonialism, it kind of looks like this cringeworthy white savior narrative. So I wish, and I say this as a huge Timothy Chalamet fan, I wish that they'd made a different casting decision and given us a BIPOC Paul Atreides. So still amazing movie, but come on, you know, embrace the spirit of the story. The one that still has me scratching my head is definitely Licorice Pizza, which is a film that has, there are lots of really good things in that film, lots of really good performances and writing and acting. That's one of the few movies that's kind of hard to find on streaming. It's a coming-of-age movie set in the San Fernando Valley in the 70s. And it's had some controversy because it includes scenes of anti-Asian racism. Stuff that is like, why is this in this movie? Like, what was this man thinking? The clips of the, like, anti-Asian racist stuff. It's just a very bizarre thing to have in the movie and not comment. And it's, like, all over the place. But, you know, like, I would watch it <laughs> before Dune, probably. And Nate had one more head-scratcher to add to the list that really speaks to the power of the critic. The movie Belfast is sort of like the archetypal version of, like, Oscar bait. I happen to, like, really like it. I have a, a family connection in that, like, my dad is also from Northern Ireland. I don't think we've got till Easter. I don't think you and me have got till Easter either. You know, seeing a movie about, like, where your parents are from, you're going to give it a boost because, it, you know, it makes you just feel a little bit more warm and fuzzy. But the funny thing is, it was one of those situations where, like, because people like me called it an Oscar player since September, I think, like, that kind of made other people, like, get their shoulders up and be like, ooh, like, I don't need to see this. It, like, put a little too much expectations on it. And, like, it did fine. Like, it got Best Picture nomination. It got Best Director. But, like... I don't think anybody thinks it's going to win. It, like, is maybe going to take home original screenplay. But, like, probably that's it. It didn't quite get the acting nominations everybody thought. So, like, it's been, it's been, like, a weird sort of muted journey for this film. And so I guess the thing that has me scratching my head is, like, if me and people like me would have talked less about it, like, would it have done better? If we would have sort of just, like, relaxed and let people enjoy it and discover it, the way kind of they did with Coda, where, like, we people weren't really banging the drum for Coda that much, and so people sort of got to discover it organically. Whereas Belfast, it sort of had these big expectations hang over it the entire time. So yeah, I wonder, like, did we ruin Belfast for everybody else? While we've been talking about this year's Oscar hopefuls, there's already a buzz for next year. 
especially in the animated film category. I'm Maylin Lee, and ever since I turned 13, I've been doing my own thing, making my own moves, 24 7, 365. I wear what I want, say what I want, and I will not hesitate to do a spontaneous cartwheel if I feel so moved. <laughs> oh, crap. Turning Red is one of Pixar's latest movies. It's about a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl named Mei who turns into a red panda whenever she gets frustrated. She navigates crushes, puberty, overprotective parents, and periods. You know, the things that most 13-year-old girls deal with. Actress Sandra Oh is the voice of Mei's mom. This is not your typical animated kids movie. And maybe that's a good thing. The film's director, Domi Shi, isn't just telling a new story on screen. She's also shattering the glass ceiling in a huge way behind the camera. Turning Red is the first Pixar movie to have an all-female creative leadership team, and she is the first woman to solely direct a Pixar movie. But this isn't the first time she's made history. To all of the nerdy girls out there who hide behind their sketchbooks, don't be afraid to tell your stories to the world. You're gonna freak people out, but you'll probably connect with them too, and that's an amazing feeling to have. That's she in 2019 accepting her Oscar for her animated short film, Bow. This Women's History Month, we're celebrating by highlighting some very cool millennial women who are breaking barriers and making history in their fields. And today, we're shining the spotlight on some women who are behind the scenes directing the action. This year, there were several women nominated for BAFTAs for Best Director, including Audrey Dewan and Julia DeCorno, but Jane Campion took home that award for Power of the Dog. This isn't Campion's first Oscar run, in 1994, she was nominated for Best Director, but she didn't win that time. And this year might be her year to take home an Oscar, too. In the almost 30 years since, only five women have been nominated. Two of them won. In 2020, a study found that there were more women directing top-grossing films than ever before. But that number is still pretty small. And the height of the pandemic didn't help because there were fewer productions made. But there are a few bright spots on the big and small screen. Chloe Zhao is one of the women who won an Oscar for Best Director. She won for a movie called Nomadland last year. But if you haven't seen Nomadland, you might have heard of this film. We are the Eternals. The Avengers are Thor, Spider-Man. But we have Thena. Hello. I'm sure that was a lot of fun for you. Eternals assemble. Chloe Zhao brought Marvel's Eternals to life last summer. And she joins the ranks of women like Kate Shortland, Anna Bowden, and Wonder Woman director Patty Jenkins, who've all directed superhero blockbusters. Soon, Nia DaCosta will be adding her name to that list. She's directing the upcoming sequel to Captain Marvel, The Marvels. But DaCosta's real breakout film was last summer's Candyman. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Costa's remake of the classic horror film became the first movie directed by a Black woman to debut at number one at the U.S. box office. Female directors aren't just making strides on the big screen. The category is... That's a clip from Pose, and Janet Mock was the writer, director, and executive producer of that show. It was all about the drag ballroom scene in the 80s and early 90s. The show ended last year. 
Mock is trans, and the trans characters on the show were played by actual trans actors. Five of our lead actresses are all trans women, so it's trans oh. women playing trans Oh, wow. Women, which has never been done before. No. Ever. And so, like, these beautiful women are finally, for the first time, taking center stage. Pose has been nominated for 20 Emmys and won four. The show's also won a Peabody Award. And this year, the show's lead actress, MJ Rodriguez, became the first trans actress to win a Golden Globe. This is not just for me. This is for y'all. This is the door that opens for y'all. Not me, for y'all. There are gonna be so many young individuals, young, talented, thriving individuals that are going to be able to trail in and storm in through the door. And Janet Mock also made history when she landed a Netflix deal, making her the first out trans woman to ever do so. If you want to learn more about other amazing women who are breaking the rules, the Skims website has a timeline featuring women making their mark. It's all a part of our Women's History Month celebration. Follow the link in our show notes to check it out. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show, and I work with an impressive team to make it all happen. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Graylin Brashear is the senior director of audio. Thanks to Nate Jones for talking to me. We'll have a link in the show notes to some of his writing. And we'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.